Heaven will surely be worth it all. That's a beautiful hymn we sang just a few moments ago. But let me ask you this question this morning. Is it possible to have heaven on earth? Is that a possibility? The answer is no. It is not literally possible to have heaven on earth because this is earth and heaven is elsewhere, obviously. And yet there is a sense in which we can have heaven on earth or what we might call a foretaste of heaven on earth. Have you ever thought about the statement that the Lord made as he gave the model prayer in Matthew chapter 6? Have you ever thought about your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? I know you've thought about it, but have you thought about it in this context, in this connection, as to whether or not there's any sense in which we can have heaven on earth? Isn't that what Jesus, in effect, was saying that we could pray for? That God's will in heaven would be done here on earth. Because obviously, as Jesus expressed it, God's will in heaven is God's will on earth. He wants his will to be done here on earth. The will that is in heaven is in harmony, or that's God's desire, that it be in harmony with his will here in the kingdom or the church. And that's where the harmony in heaven is to exist. It has to exist in the kingdom because obviously his will is not being done by those outside the kingdom, tragically. It's not being done by those who are perpetrating acts of terrible, terrible violence as we have witnessed just in our own city in the past few days. That's not God's will. But if God's will in heaven is done here on earth in the kingdom, the church, and if everyone were in that kingdom and in that church and striving to do the will of God, then, oh yes, there would be a very real sense in which we'd have heaven on earth in the sense we'd have a foretaste of heaven on earth. And in the kingdom, the church, we do. Where the church is following God's will, we do have and should have a foretaste of heaven on earth. We should have it right here at White Oak. We should have it right here and everywhere where God's people fully understand and appreciate what Jesus expressed in that model prayer as he gave us an example of how we could pray and as Jesus expressed throughout his will as he taught us how to have the harmony in the kingdom on earth that exists in heaven above. Let me invite your attention to the first eight verses of Philippians chapter 2. The first eight verses of chapter 2 of Philippians, these verses tell us how to achieve and maintain the harmony of heaven here on earth. I'm reading from the New King James translation. Paul writes, therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. 
Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And here's our key verse. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. What a passage. What a passage. What a chapter here that has been called, and I believe I made a note at the head of my chapter here that I got from the late Winfred Clark, who identified this chapter in his view, and a right view of it, I think, as the self-emptying life. That's what Paul deals with here in the second chapter of Philippians, the self-emptying life. And what an example of emptying oneself that we have just read in how the Savior emptied himself of equality with God so that you and I might have the hope of eternal life in heaven. It's a plea for unity. And verse 1 gives us the motivation for that plea. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, all of these provide incentives for emptying ourselves and having the harmony here on earth that exists in the heavenly abode. Then in verses 2 through 4 of the reading, he gives us the attitudes and the actions that will result in that harmony. The attitudes and the actions that will result in that unity. Here it is again. Fulfill my joy by being what? Like-minded. I want you to notice how much the mind comes into play here. By being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord. Here it is again. Of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. There's our word mind again. Let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interests of others. Paul doesn't say don't be concerned about your own interest, don't take care of yourself, don't take care of your family, don't, don't meet responsibilities. No, he's not saying that. He's saying don't look out only for your own interest, but also for the interest of others. And the same writer expressed some similar, very similar sentiments and admonition over in Romans chapter 12. At verse 10, when there he wrote, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. Listen to this, in honor, giving, giving preference to one another. Consider others better than yourself. Give preference to one another. Don't be consumed with your own interests, but concerned with the interests of others. What a plea for unity. What a basis for unity is given thus far in these first four verses. But then we come to the key verse with which we'll spend the bulk of our remaining time in this study together. And that's verse 5. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. 
Now, in this immediate context, it is a mind of self-emptying, obviously. It is a mind of sacrifice. It is a mind of supreme sacrifice. As he says, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. In other words, he was equal with God. No question about it. And yet, he made himself of no reputation. The American Standard Translation there says, he emptied himself, there in verse 7. He emptied himself. He emptied himself of that equality. And notice, he emptied himself. He emptied himself. No one forced him to do it. He did it lovingly. He did it willingly. And as he lived among men, he reminded us all of that fact. When you look at John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18, the words of Jesus are recorded there. Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it again. Now listen, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. And so when we read the words, but made himself of no reputation, those are significant. Made himself. He did it lovingly. He did it voluntarily. He did it out of love for you and me. Taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. And then he adds, and we've talked about this before, the point of death, not a peaceful death in his sleep, but even the death of the cross. Even the death of the cross. Now go back with me to verse 5. And concentrate on that mind. Set your mind on mind here. And think about the mind of Christ for just a few moments with me. And let each letter of that word reveal something to us that hopefully will continually remind us of the mind of Christ. The mind that we should emulate, strive to emulate to the fullest extent of our ability every day that we live upon this earth. It was first of all, and is a mind of meekness. Meekness. Matthew eleven twenty eight and 29. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, Jesus continued with that greatest of all invitations, and learn of me. For I am meek, as the King James says, gentle, as the New King James says, and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Meekness. The mind of meekness, how important it is to emulate the mind of Christ in that regard and to think about that quality of meekness. It's not a quality of weakness. In fact, as we have said before, the definition of meekness is strength, but strength under control. Strength that is submissive strength. Strength that is a gentle strength. Strength that is a patient strength, but it is strength nonetheless. It is a strength that will endure with patience 
injury and abuse as Jesus endured with patience. The greatest abuse one could imagine of his time, the greatest injury of his time. We think about meekness and we think about Moses, who is a type of Christ in the Old Testament. Christ is a lawgiver. Moses was a lawgiver. Several points of analogy could be cited that show that in the study of typology, Moses was a type of Christ. He was God's anointed leader. He was the mediator between God and his people of old, as Christ is now our one mediator between God's people and the Father. Oh yes, so many points of analogy about that, but meekness is another point of analogy. And Numbers verse 12, and or chapter 12 verse 3 reminds us, Now the man Moses, as the new King James says, was very humble. The King James says meek above all the men who were on the face of the earth. Think with me for a moment about the context in which that statement is made. It is not just simply a statement that is made out of context. What is the context? The context is that Moses' own sister and brother were taking him to task. Why? Well, supposedly it was because he had married an Ethiopian woman, but that shouldn't have been a problem for them. What is a deeper problem, it seems, is that they simply didn't understand why Moses was the one who was given all this authority to lead, and why not them too? Listen to it. Then Miriam and Aaron, verse 1 of chapter 12 of Numbers spoke against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married, for he had married an Ethiopian woman. But here, listen to verse 2. Here's a further problem. So they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? There's your deeper problem. And then here's a sobering statement. And the Lord heard it. And the Lord hears everything. He hears it all, doesn't he? And the Lord heard it. Now we're back to the statement in verse 3. Now the man Moses was very humble, or meek, more than all men who were on the face of the earth. Why is that statement made in that context? Well, for one thing, I think it reveals that God chose the right man to lead God's people. He was not a man who was going to retaliate. He was not a man who was going to lash out at, at his brother and his sister or any man. Oh, yes, we know that later on Moses did become angry and, and violated God's will there in Numbers chapter 20, struck the rock. He was a human being, but he was also a very fine human being. And one can only imagine the kind of disappointment that Moses experienced when he heard his own brother and sister, his own brother and sister, say to him, who do you think you are, in effect? Are you the only one through whom God speaks? What about us? That had to be terribly disappointing, deeply disappointing to him. And then when he realized that God had heard it and reacted strongly to it by saying to them, to the three, come out to the tabernacle of meeting. You know, that's kind of like perhaps an analogy when we were children, and perhaps we did or said something that we never should have said, and it was overheard by our father, and he said, come out to the woodshed or some other place like that. 
That's exactly what you've got here. You've got God taking Moses, or you've got God taking Miriam and Aaron to the woodshed here because they had violated God's will. Moses went with them. So the three came out. Then the Lord came down in the pillar of cloud and stood in the door of the tabernacle and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both went forward. Then he said, Hear now my words. Is there a prophet among you? I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. I speak with him face to face, even plainly and not in dark sayings. And he sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And then verse 9 says, So the anger of the Lord was aroused against them, and he departed. And when the cloud departed from above the tabernacle, suddenly Miriam became leprous, as white as snow. Then Aaron turned toward Miriam, and there she was, a leper. So Aaron said to Moses, O my Lord, please do not lay this sin on us in which we have done foolishly and in which we have sinned. Please do not let her be as one dead whose flesh is half consumed when he comes out of his mother's womb. So Moses said what? God did this. You deserved it. Nothing I can do for you. No, so Moses cried out to the Lord saying, Please heal her, O God, I pray. Oh, there's meekness. There's strength under control. There is strength resisting opposition. Strength with patience. And that's the kind of meekness that characterized Moses. But he was simply typical of the one who was perfect in meekness. The sinless Son of God. Enduring injury with patience and without resentment. That's what you'll find in the dictionary about it, and that's a pretty good definition. Strength under control. And the Bible enjoins meekness upon us as disciples. You remember Matthew 5 and verse 5? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You can go back for a previous statement on that, almost in identical words to Psalm 37, verse 11. But the meek shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, meaning you'll eventually inherit all the land? Of course not, but you'll have the, the best that this has to offer. This existence on earth, the best that it has to offer will truly belong to those who are meek, who have the mind of Christ in that regard. But let's go to the next letter. And let the letter I suggest interested, an interested mind. Oh, how interested we ought to be if we're to have the mind of Christ in what? In doing the will of the Father. That consumed the very existence of the Son of God as He lived among men. He was consumed with doing the will of the Father. He was interested in the precious souls of people, even those who rejected Him, even those who reviled Him, and yes, even those who ultimately crucified Him. He prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. His interest as he lived among men extended even to a materialistic, immoral woman at Jacob's well in John chapter 4, whom he patiently taught out of her error and into truth. 
We've got to be interested in every individual. Regardless of their social or economic standing in the community, every soul is equally precious in God's sight. That's why on August 8th we're seeking to reach out to those in this community who are in need, but not only with physical help, but also with spiritual help. We're looking to meet not only physical needs, but to find those with whom we can have a further influence spiritually and lead them to Christ. Let's be interested as Christ was. Let's have the mind of Christ with that kind of interest in individuals. And oh, you will never find a better example of one that many might have simply said, she is not going to be interested in anything I have to say. That was the woman at the well. And yet look where it led. It led to her belief in Jesus as the Christ and her going in to tell others, come see, see a man who told me everything I did. That was hyperbole. He didn't tell her everything she'd ever done, but he told her enough so that he knew that she knew this was the Christ. And she went in to tell others and others came and became obedient to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the teaching of Christ, because of that woman's influence. But it was initially because of the interested mind of Christ, interested in one precious soul. We've got to be interested in spiritual things. Set your mind on things above, Paul said. If then you were raised with Christ, Colossians 3, 1 beginning, set your mind on things above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And so, if your interest is in spiritual things, in the heavenly things, then your interest also has to be in others. You can't be interested in the spiritual things without being interested in others. Going back to Philippians 2, 3 and 4, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. The mind of Christ, a mind of meekness, a mind that's interested, and a mind that's narrow. Yes, let the, let the letter N in the word mind suggest narrow-minded. Now sometimes, in fact I would say probably in the world in which we live, generally that's not considered to be a very positive term. Generally, when someone talks about someone else as being narrow-minded, it is not a compliment, wouldn't you say? Generally, it is, well, he or she is so narrow-minded, he or she won't even whatever, you know, the case may be. And yet, we've got to be narrow-minded if we have the mind of Christ. But the key is, the, the narrowness of our mind has to be just as narrow as the mind of Christ, no more and no less. And again, if we go back to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, 13 and 14, what was the admonition there that Jesus gave? Enter by the what? Narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. For narrow is the gate and difficult is the way that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Enter by the narrow gate. That's narrow-mindedness. We can't become more broad-minded than the Lord. And we know how narrow 
his mind was by just simply studying this book openly and honestly. We don't want to bind where he has not bound. That's narrow-mindedness that's gone to one extreme. But by the same token, we dare not loose where he has not loosed because that's broad-mindedness in the other extreme. And tragically, we live in a world today where many have become broad-minded in a bad sense about so many issues. Marriage, divorce, and remarriage. How we worship, the role of women in worship, social drinking, immodesty, the modern dance, so many things that could be cited. As I was reading just recently the follow-up to Michael Shank's book, Muscle and a Shovel, an excellent work that has led to literally thousands of conversions. He has now written a book that is designed to bring the wayward child home to God. And I just finished reading it, and it's excellent. Frankly, I, Steve and I have talked about it, our, my fellow elder, and we've talked about making that book known, and we plan or using that book to try to help to restore some of those who are wayward among us. But frankly, it's a book, as the book itself says, and I don't argue with it, that needs to be in the hands of every member of the body of Christ. And we may do that very thing, just simply make it available to every family here. But as a part of that book, and it's excellent, he talks about his journey, and boy, he is open and honest about that journey away from God and the journey back to God, thankfully. But he talks in one section about the church itself and what is needed, and he decries the emotionalism and the ecumenical attitude that has pervaded in many places the Lord's church. In other words, broad-mindedness beyond the mind of Christ. Nothing wrong with emotion. In fact, everything's right with emotion. We need to be emotional. But we do not need to stress emotionalism to the exclusion, let alone the detriment of being as narrow-minded as the Lord himself is. And so, we must not be more narrow than the Word of God in any biblical teaching. Nor can we be less narrow than the Word. In other words, we've just got to stay with the book. And that leads to our last letter in the word mind, and that's D, and that's devoted. The mind of Christ was a mind that was completely devoted. If you let Webster define it, he does a pretty good job of it. He says, one who has given over wholly or purposefully. One who has given over, given himself over, wholly or purposefully. And so the idea is to be ardent in our service, to be devout, to love, as Jesus said in Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven, the Lord with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind. And the devoted mind will not question the need to come together and to assemble as children of God. The devoted mind will not question the need to give of our time and our talents and our money. The, the devoted mind will not question the need to work diligently in the kingdom of God and to do it with an attitude of love and esteem for others better than ourselves. Yes, chapter 2 of Philippians, the self-emptying life. And oh, what the supreme example tells us. 
in the self-emptying of the Christ who gave up equality with God to come to this earth and to die the most horrific death one can possibly imagine and to undergo so much which we cannot fully understand from a finite perspective as we think about deity because we've never been deity but he was and never gave up his deity but emptied himself and became humanity as well and suffered so immensely in so many ways so that we could have the unity for which he so fervently prayed in John 17 when he said neither do I pray for these that is the apostles alone but for all those who will believe on me through their word that they may be one even as you father are in me and I in you that they may be one in us what about your mind this morning why did Jesus come from the very throne of God to the bottom rung of the ladder the cross why did he do that he did it to save you he did it to save me and to show us that only by having that same humility only by having that same attitude of self-emptying may we have harmony in the church and a foretaste of heaven on earth. Only that humility will enable us to one day enjoy the literal heaven that Jesus has gone to prepare for us. Why did my Savior come to earth and to the humble go? Why did he choose a lowly birth? The grand old hymn answers scripturally, because he loved me so. Will you love in return? John says we love him because he first loved us, 1 John four nineteen, And Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And for you this morning, if you're outside of Christ, it is a commandment to believe that Jesus is the Christ, to repent of your sins, to confess him as the Christ, and yes, to be buried in baptism for the remission of sins. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. And if you need to come home to your first love as one who has been faithful at one time but knows this morning you are no longer faithful to him, then come home. Return to the shepherd of your soul, Jesus Christ in repentance and confession of any sin that needs to be confessed publicly. And let us pray with you and for you to the God of heaven who wants you to have a foretaste of heaven here on earth and wants you to come back into the kingdom. As we stand to sing, will you come?